Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, Connecticut Explored's Elizabeth Norman talks with the Connecticut Historical Society's Eileen Frank and Jordan Klein about their new special exhibition, Connecticut Innovates. Igor Sikorsky failed. Two lives had been lost. The attempted flight in 1926 of his S-35 biplane from Long Island to Paris with a crew of four and 2,500 gallons of fuel on board had crashed on takeoff. The pilot and co-pilot escaped the ensuing fireball, but two crew members did not. It was now uncertain if the fledgling Sikorsky Aero Engineering Company, founded just three years earlier, would survive. But it did, as Alexander Sewell relates in his story Sikorsky Still Revolutionary in the spring 2014 issue of Connecticut Explored. And Sikorsky would go on to fail again. His early design for a helicopter went through so many rebuilds, workers called it Igor's Nightmare. Margaret Redkin, too, had first failed. Her first attempts at making bread from organic ingredients, she admitted, was hard as a rock and about one inch high. So she started over again. But that wasn't her only challenge. She was baking bread in the first place to find a solution to her son's food allergies. And it was the Great Depression, and she needed in part to support her family. But this isn't a story about failure, though failure was something Sikorsky and Redkin were quite familiar with, clearly. This is a story about what it takes to be an incredibly successful innovator. Redkin went on to found the major brand Pepperidge Farm, a story you can read in the winter 2015-2016 issue that's all about the Connecticut brand, and Igor Sikorsky went on to be hugely successful building helicopters. These two Connecticut stories remind us that even the most successful innovators failed at first and faced great challenges, but they were driven by a need that they identified, needs as diverse as a food allergy and a vertical lift aircraft. Connecticut innovators are the subject of a special exhibition on view now at Connecticut Historical Society, and I went for a sneak peek and to hear more about how CHS approached the topic. Hi, this is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored at the Connecticut Historical Society for a sneak peek at their new exhibition, Connecticut Innovates. I'm speaking today with Eileen Frank, chief curator, and Jordan Klein, the exhibition developer. Hello. Hi. Between 1790, when the Patent Office was established in the United States, and 1930, this is according to ConnecticutHistory.org, Connecticut residents were issued the most patents in the U.S. per capita and still ranks in the top 10 states earning patents today. But patents, as far as they signify invention, aren't enough to qualify as innovative, according to your definition, right? Correct. We define innovation as invention plus impact. So it's not enough to have thought of an idea or created a product or even gotten a patent for it. You're really measuring what kind of impact then it might have had in what what kinds of ways? Well, the exhibit kind of addresses a wide range of the impacts that that Connecticut innovators specifically have had, but what we're examining is the idea that invention can't kind of happen in a vacuum, that for invention to really affect change, it has to it has to have an impact on society, it has to have an impact on the people of Connecticut and on the people of the rest of the country. Um, and each of our the innovations that we highlight in this exhibit have had that lasting impact that we can we can see in our everyday lives. 
Also, are you making the case that Connecticut is somehow different than anyone else? It's interesting because I think we always want to think of ourselves as unique and special, and in many ways we are. But when you look at the history of the Northeast, there are a lot of the elements that we talk about in terms of having educational institutions and having natural resources and having other industries to build off of that, that you can find in other places in the Northeast, Massachusetts or the Hudson River Valley. So what we did here is instead of trying to do the rah-rah Connecticut's unique story, we at least wanted to have a real focus on some of the unique innovations that did happen in Connecticut. So while those underlying factors that cause those innovations might be more widespread, not just in this state, but across an entire region or, or even beyond. The, the products, the materials, the ideas that were innovated here are definitely uh, unique to Connecticut. About how many companies do you think you've covered? Um, we probably cover about 14, I would say. So we have our six main case studies. Then each case study has um, kind of what we're calling a highlight story. So another Connecticut innovator or Connecticut innovation that um, is related to the case study that we're talking about. And how did you arrive at those? Some, some long discussions. Uh, we also were really fortunate that we worked with an advisory board made up of uh, leaders from a lot of corporations that are still here in Connecticut, and they gave great input onto uh, companies that we should look at. So we had this very long list. We are fully prepared that visitors are going to walk in here and come up to us and say, you forgot, because... When you have 2,000 square feet, you have to make decisions. And so some of those decisions were influenced by wanting to have things that people might not be expecting. So maybe some of the more um, unheard stories, not the ones that you might have been exposed to in your K-12 education. We wanted to have diversity. We wanted to be able to talk about a range of those key ideas that are needed for innovation. So you start off with a huge list. You start whittling it down. There is the element, because it is an exhibit, of what's going to look interesting. So we also have to think about that, what's going to uh, hold a visitor's attention as they walk through our galleries. But this is not intended in any way to be the list of the top innovators. It's just a sampling to explore some questions that we have. We also thought that the six case studies we went with all represented different stories of innovation. So they were different trajectories that um, the company founders or the where the company is today, how they got to where they are. Um, we wanted uh, stories that ranged and also industries that ranged. So we wanted a variety in how the innovation came about and what the specific products or ideas were that, that came from those innovators. Some of the companies that you're featuring make parts, if you will, um, which has long been a hallmark of Connecticut manufacturing. It's often called, uh, has been called a place that makes the machines that makes products or uh, was particularly well known for pre precision man manufacturing that came out of the early gun in industry that later then contributed to companies like uh, Pratt & Whitney. It was home to hardware manufacturers and tool manufacturers. But it has uh, also been home to some major brands, as we featured in our winter 2015-2016 issue about what, that we called the Connecticut brand. And you covered a couple of those. Sikorsky, Electric Boat, and Pepperidge Farms are a couple of examples we looked at. So many of these are 20th century companies like Pepperidge Farm uh, began around the time of the Great Depression. Sikorsky was innovating uh, with both amphibious aircraft and helicopters in the 1930s and 40s. But uh, Stanley Tools, now Stanley Black & Decker in New Britain, goes way back to 1843. They're one of the longest 
companies to be here and still have a presence in Connecticut. For me, one of the challenges or one of the reasons maybe people don't immediately think of Connecticut as a place of innovation unless they know their Connecticut history is because it often made machines that made machines or it made parts. You, you've kind of grappled with that as well in this exhibition. That's one of the things actually that's kind of interesting here. Talk about maybe uh, how you grappled with that, that same idea. I think you're, you, you touched on a subject that we had a lot of conversations about when we were planning the exhibit, which is some of the companies we feature make invisible inventions or things that we don't even think are innovative anymore, like the pull chain socket by Hubble. And, you know, I have used one of those probably my entire life in the basement or, you know, in my pantry. And, and you forget that that was innovative at that time. We, when we were looking to select our case studies, it kind of comes back to the selection. We did grapple with this idea of um, we wanted innovations that visitors would um, recognize things they would see on a daily basis, things that impact their lives and they can really recognize, like the pull chain socket and the detachable plug from Hubble. But we also wanted to include innovations that they may not um, realize are impacting their lives every day, um, like the industrial springs springs produced by the Barnes Group. Um, So these kind of small components that were really the energy that fuel a lot of the products we use on a daily basis, but that we don't, we can't directly um, every day trace back those little components as being um, a big impact on the way that we live our lives when really, really they are. And I think that for some people, industry and technology, they are thinking um, of a 19th century, early 20th century idea of that huge factory where hundreds of people go to work on uh, on a shift. And if you happen to, I mean, this does, this does still happen in Connecticut. I was down in Groton by an electric boat and happened to be there right when the shift was getting out. And good luck trying to move your car as hundreds of people come pouring out of that uh, plant. But... Today, the companies tend to be um, tucked away in tech parks or they're in smaller offices or you don't realize what's being made because the company names aren't necessarily product names, although if you know what they are making, you end up seeing them all over the place. And so we did want to focus on, on making people aware of the companies that are still here in Connecticut and innovating today and making new things because you're not necessarily driving by some huge factory with hundreds and hundreds of employees that you, you see on a daily basis. Yeah, we posed that, that question directly to our advisory committee. We asked them, is Connecticut still innovative today? How is Connecticut still innovative today? And they told us, absolutely, the state is. You just need to kind of shift your, your definition of what production is and shift your definition of what um, industrial production is and, and see that there is a changing physical landscape of innovation that is in our state today where um, an innovator, an in- inventor or an innovator might not be the person who's just kind of a me- mechanically oriented tinkerer, but it could be somebody who comes out of a um, tech incubator, somebody who is kind of um, coming out of an educational system and, and groomed to be the next kind of inventor in um, creating accessible apps, the, the next innovator in, we feature a, a bioprosthetic heart valve. Um, so those are, are really specific kind of um, uh, almost niche um, products that you, you don't see them being produced in a massive scale in a really physical way when you're, like Eileen said, when you're traveling to and from work every day. 
One of the first organizations that you that you explore is the Barnes Group, and what's fun about that one that is a thread that appears to be throughout the exhibit is kind of tracing the impact of a very early innovation over time. So you have a poster that Barnes Group themselves had put out at 1920s, late 1920s, 1920s. and it, they're illustrating their own trajectory. The Barnes Group started out making clock springs in Bristol. They were making the, the the springs that made the clocks tick um, is kind of one of their one of their phrases about it. But they, um, as hoop skirts became more and more popular in the 1860s, they saw an opportunity. They said, "We have the technology to be able to bend and bend wire um, in the way that." we've learned by making clock springs, um, we bet that can be applied to hoop skirts as well. Um, so they, they built a separate building. They called it their crinoline hall, and they were producing um, hoop skirts for many years was, was the main focus of their, of their production. And as hoop skirts then went out of style, um, they kind of had that spring-making capability to fall back on, and they, they grew more and more in the world of industrial springs, eventually in the 1950s transitioning into... Um, spring technology and other other production for aerospace technology. So they started making springs that were in uh, space suits, and they were making springs that were in um, rockets. They were making springs that kind of transcended the, the initial start from clock springs into really greater um, impacts. And so one of the themes that you, you mentioned that you uh, explore as well is, is adaptability. Uh, that and, and, of course, Connecticut Industries as in other states, uh, at wartime uh, retooled and then retooled again after wartime, and they've gone through quite a few transitions. Do you want to talk about an example? That is definitely a theme for, um, we, for a while we were calling them our legacy companies. We have so many companies in the state that are over 100 years old, and if you look at them, they've lasted because they were able to adapt with the times and maybe even change the products that they were producing. So we talk a little bit about Command, which was making uh, helicopters and especially uh, doing research into pilotless flight. And at some point when their defense contracts were not as large and plentiful as, as they once were, Command started experimenting with and eventually created ovation guitars. And so this idea of using the materials and using some of the theories that he was um, applying to pilotless flight into a musical instrument, I have to admit, for me, that's one of those... um, there's one of those jumps that kind of boggles my mind. I mean, I think it really shows just how um, how these men and women view the world in a way that uh, is different from me, and I'm glad they exist because we would not be as inventive if I was left to control all of this. Um, and so they, they made the guitars for a while, and then when they were able to switch back into more helicopter production and other things, then they eventually sold off that line of Ovation guitars. But to go from helicopters to guitars and back is, uh, I think, a fascinating story. So one of the reasons for success in many of the Connecticut companies is uh, marketing, innovative marketing, and, and the Colt manufacturing and Winchester um, and the gun manufacturing is, is probably Exhibit A or one of the earlier uh, ones. Do you, do you talk about that in the exhibition? Yeah, absolutely. We wanted to, in two instances in the exhibit, take an innovative story that our visitors might know and twist it a little bit and talk about that marketing side of it. So we do that with both Colt and Pepperidge Farm. 
One of the stories that we focus on um, with marketing is the connection between Catlin and Colt. And we felt that our visitors were going to come to this exhibit and expect to see Colt. I think uh, not to, you should still come and see it. But we threw this little curveball in that we focus on Colt as a marketer um, and not so much the precision manufacturing that you mentioned earlier. So Colt hired uh, the American artist George Catlin uh, to, he commissioned him to do a series of paintings of the American West where Catlin puts himself as the hero in these images using Colt products. So we have a lithograph on loan from the Wadsworth and the title is George Catlin the artist shooting buffalo with a Colt revolver. And it becomes one of the first instances of product placement. These paintings were then um, produced uh, as lithographs and then they were reproduced in magazines and newspapers and and so here they are, these images of the West, very popular at the time, but really they're subconsciously uh, talking about Colt weapons. And today I think we're very um, cognizant of product placement. It's subconscious, but we also see it, and we're like, oh, yeah, right, look at the way they're holding the, you know, the can or the item you know, when we're watching TV or whatever. But this was, this was really innovative. And so we connect that story with Pepperidge Farm and uh, Margaret Rudkin, who really was one of the first to invest a tremendous amount of money and hire a Madison Avenue uh, marketing firm and created this spokesperson character of Titus Moody. Um, I've been told I do a horrible impression of Titus Moody and his his line Pepperidge Farm remembers, so I will not torture you with it. But we, he was, he was long-lasting, several decades in use. Uh, definitely in my childhood, I remember him being on TV. And so that whole idea of, of creating a brand feel of nostalgia and wholesomeness and New England goodness, if that's even a phrase, was something that she did to promote her product. And so those putting those two stories together uh, is a juxtaposition that uh, we were really, we had a great time doing those sort of out there juxtapositions. And we wanted to emphasize that innovation isn't only product-based, that innovation is not just the idea of creating a physical, tangible thing that has an impact, but it can also be um, creating a new process or a new idea that has impact as well. And specifically with the, both the Pepperidge Farm and the Colt stories, were this idea of, of creating a new idea, of, um, of marketing a product in a new way that that allowed it to access new new customers, new clients. Uh, so what about uh, the future? Are we only looking at the past, or what about the future of innovation in Connecticut? Absolutely not. Yeah, we definitely wanted to look towards the future and what is happening in the state today. Um, the way we chose to do that is that um, for each of our six case studies, we kind of aligned them thematically with a current Connecticut company. So someone who is um, creating an, what we're saying has the potential to be an innovative product, has, has, a, has a potential to be a long-standing impact impactful um, idea or product today. Um, so it kind of allows our visitors to, to take a look at what's really happening in the state today, what industries, uh, be it in the defense industry or in uh, biomedical production or in more tech-based um, innovators, what's happening in the state today, um, and really draw those connections thematically from the idea of 
safety um, in the 19th century and the 20th century to what safety looks like today, or the idea of um, an all-natural product peppered farm in, this, in the um, 20th century to what an all-natural product really looks like in the 21st century and how Connecticut is playing a role in that by highlighting specific companies that are, are, are um, active in, in the Connecticut industries today. We also, uh, in the room that we're sitting in, in the exhibit gallery, we wanted to have a space where hopefully people are inspired to be problem solvers themselves. And so uh, in this room, it's very hands-on, and there's materials that you can, uh, household sort of everyday objects that you can use to maybe answer one of, we pose six problems that you could try to solve. Um, or maybe you have something else that you just want to spend some time and reflect and think and maybe be the next innovative uh, invention that's going to come out and impact the second half of the 21st century, which is not that far away. <laughs> well, and I think one of the things, the takeaways that people are going to have, which I really like that you've talked about, is um, that you have to look maybe in different places and think about uh, in innovation and where it's happening in a little different way than, than we have in the past. And so that while we might think it's not happening there, it's happening is just um, maybe a little bit more hidden. Well, thank you very much for uh, giving us a, a, a sneak peek and a little teaser for Connecticut Innovates, which opens uh, November 11th. Thank and you. Closes March 25th, 2017. So it's a nice long run, and we hope you come and see it. And lots of time over the winter to come in and, and take a look at it. So thank you very much, Jordan and Eileen, for uh, spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you. For more information on Connecticut Innovates at the Connecticut Historical Society, on view through March 25th, 2017, visit chs.org. To read stories about Connecticut's industrial history, visit ctexplore.org slash listen for a list of links and listen to our other podcasts that touch on Connecticut innovations, including episode two of Grading the Nutmeg about the genius of Roger Eddy's Audubon bird call and what you'll find at the New Britain Industrial Museum, and one of our most popular episodes, episode four, Connecticut Clocks and American Words. For Connecticut Explored and Grading the Nutmeg, this is Elizabeth Norman. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Eileen Frank, Jordan Klein, and Connecticut Historical Society. If you've become a fan of Grading the Nutmeg, support us with a gift to the Friends of Connecticut Explored. Designated gifts to Grading the Nutmeg will be shared between Connecticut Explored, the nonprofit magazine of Connecticut history, and the outreach efforts of the Office of the State Historian. Donate at ctexplored.org slash friends. Keep an ear out for our special Grading the Nutmeg episode, A Christmas Story, Connecticut Style, coming up soon on Grading the Nutmeg.